Hi, I'm Tony Hines, and you're listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. just go up for the gas and the oil, but all forms of energy are now in high demand because substitution takes place. If one form of energy is not available, but other forms are, then people switch. They have to switch if they want the energy. And so that increases demand for all types of energy, all sources of energy. And that means that prices on world markets move higher. And there are two things moving prices and causing price inflation on the world markets presently. One is energy and the other is food. And food is secondary to the energy because we need energy to grow food and to process food. So really it comes back to energy. And so we're going to talk about energy and what can be done. Water, steam, coal, steam, oil, gas, electricity, solar, wind. What do these things have in common? Well, they're all forms of energy. And the stages of a life cycle through which human energy has been harnessed for industry. The demand, of course, is higher than ever. Industry output is higher than ever. And so energy is necessary to power industry. Energy is necessary to grow food. Energy is necessary to sustain life. So energy is a priority for human existence and for human endeavour. To stay warm, we need heat. From the first spark, from two sticks, through to coal, oil, gas, we need warmth. And energy and the different forms of energy are important on world markets. If there's short supply of one source, substitution takes place, and prices of all forms of energy increase. And we've seen that in the past year, since Russia invaded Ukraine on the 24th of February, energy prices have rocketed. And it's unlikely that they're going to come down until there's a resolution to that war. So how do we make energy prices affordable? Well, there's a limit to what people can pay for energy. It just means hardship for most people if they can't get the energy that they need, whether that be to produce goods, produce food, or heat their homes. And so energy supply is critical. 
it's one of those assets that the governments have to secure for the people that they govern. And in that sense, it's a strategic asset and it's incumbent on any government to ensure that those strategic assets are secured. Since the start of the Industrial Revolution, coal has been a major form of energy. Coal has been used to heat homes, to drive power in factories, and it's been used for production of all sorts of materials, metals, iron, steel. And coal and coke and other fossil fuels have been important to industry and to human existence. But they also create CO2 emissions. Coal and other fossil fuels, including oil, gas, have high CO2 emissions, which are also destroying life on the planet, as well as preserving life on the planet. And it's finding the balance that works to do both. Greener forms of energy are important. They're important for the future. And there really should have been more investment in those greener sources of energy. Why are we just talking about greener energy now? And why are we talking about reverting back to coal right now and being dependent on oil and gas? Because we haven't invested enough in developing new technologies and bringing those technologies to produce and replace the volumes of fossil fuel necessary to drive industry, heat our homes and do everything else that energy does, produce electricity and so on. Now you may not know this, but uh, 40% of all the shipping around the globe is carrying fuel, fossil fuel to be precise. It carries oil, gas and coal. So that's 40% of the shipping by volume. So if our energy needs were met from renewable energy rather than fossil fuel, there'd be a massive saving in the pollution caused by that shipping alone. Governments signed up through the various climate change policies to decarbonising targets and energy markets face extreme volatility in the marketplace, which is also compounded by geopolitical tension and increasing demand for energy. During 2021, global energy demand and emissions increased by 5% compared to 2020. At COP26 in Glasgow, 64 countries representing 89% of global CO2 emissions made net zero pledges and financial institutions and private sector enterprises also aspire to increase their decarbonisation. The mix of energy has to shift, and by 2050, electricity produced by non-carbon sources has to account for at least 50% of the energy mix. Renewable sources in the United Kingdom amounted to 40% of the total fuel mix in 2020-21, and that's just 10% away from the 50% required. When you look at the total fuel mix, it's coal 3%, gas 38%, nuclear 16%, renewables 40 and other fuels 3%. That makes up the 100% in the UK, so already on target. Electricity demand is forecast to triple by 2050, 
with sectors concentrating efforts on electrification and hydrogen is seen as a clean fuel to decarbonize. But it's not as clear-cut as it looks. Renewables are projected to be 80 to 90% of the global energy mix by 2050, with an increasing amount of solar and wind power. But we also need to harness wave power, water power. That perhaps is one of the most fruitful and yet underrated sources of energy generation. It's expected that the peak demand for oil will occur between 2024 and 2030. Electrical vehicles are also being produced, but the battery technology needs to improve. The demand for coal peaked around 2013, but coal is on the way back in the face of the current energy crisis. The price of coal in the past year has quadrupled, and that's causing a shift in the focus of energy production to satisfy immediate demand and short-term demand. So that threatens climate targets while at the same time solving an immediate problem. It creates a future one. Gas demand too is set to increase between 10 to 20% by 2035. And there are plans afoot to capture carbon, to stop it causing the pollution, the acid rain, and damaging the ozone layer and the oceans of the world. So these are all difficult choices that people will have to make, or at least governments have to make, on behalf of people. Total investment in all sectors of energy are forecast to increase by 4%. Now is that high enough? By 2035, investment in energy supply will reach 1.5 trillion US dollars. Now let's focus on the energy crisis in Europe in particular. It's here that we can see the global energy crisis playing out. About five months prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Russia had started limiting the amount of gas reaching Europe, and they were putting pressure on by restricting supply so that they could get their plans to get Nord Stream 2, the pipeline from Russia through Europe, approved. So tension was already building up. The European Union's reliance on Russian gas imports are high. It's about one-third, 33% as a source. In some countries it's higher. In Germany it's over 50%. So Europe is now put in a position where it's under threat continuously from the restrictions of Russian gas. Even with gas storage rates as high as 90%, the European Union would face an increased risk from disruption to its supply of gas if Russia decided to completely cut off gas. Of course, it's no mean feat to get to a storage position of 90% of the capacity needed to see Europe through a winter. Plans are afoot already to curb demand, and governments in Europe are encouraging citizens and industry to reduce the demand for gas. In other words, to preserve the gas that they have in storage for the winter ahead. The Institute of Economic Affairs 
said that the gas needed is around 12 billion cubic meters, which is enough to fill 130 LNG tankers. So the scale of the problem is large. Even if gas supplies come from Norway or Azerbaijan, it's unlikely that the demand could be satisfied in full. After the break, we'll discuss energy and what it means in the rest of the world, particularly for China and how China is facing up to the demands for energy, for its industry and growth. Now, in the past week or two, Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan, and that set the Chinese regime into overdrive with military operations throughout that South China Sea near to Taiwan. Of course, in the past few years, China has built five standalone military centers throughout the South China Sea. Those bases, of course, those military bases that they have would act as aircraft carriers if there was any conflict in that area. They're basically stationary aircraft carriers to hold military personnel and weapons and for China to control that sea area. I'm going to explain a little bit why that happened and also the threat to Taiwan, the threat to China and its supplies and how it all ties up with global supply chains. Now, much of the sea trade from Southeast Asia passes through the Malacca Straits. The Straits of Malacca is a narrow stretch of water between the Malay Peninsula and the Indonesian island of Sumatra. It's about 580 miles long or 930 kilometers and about one and a half miles wide at its narrowest point. And it's a strategic waterway for China to receive its oil from the Persian Gulf coming out of the Straits of Hormuz and for carrying Chinese goods for sale in Western markets. But all the sea traffic, all the container traffic, all the oil and gas shipments have to pass through the Malacca Straits to get to China. And all the goods coming from China, exported, have to pass through the Malacca Straits when they're heading west. The Malacca Straits are of significant strategic importance to China. The countries in the South China Sea that surround China are Taiwan, Philippines, Brunei, Indonesia, Malaysia and Vietnam. And each of those claims territorial waters, as does China. But China claims most of the territorial waters, as we shall see. But China has become more dependent on that waterway since 1986, as it's developed its global trade. And as it's done so, it needs more oil and more gas to power the factories and production hubs in China. China has a lot of its own oil, of course, but not sufficient to meet its own needs anymore. It can only meet about 20% from its own supply. Much of the oil and the liquid natural gas that China gets comes from Russia, 
Kazakhstan, over in the Caspian Sea, Turkmenistan, and of course oil from the Persian Gulf. So those are the main areas that China is importing its oil and gas from. And it now has an insatiable thirst for oil and gas. But the threat to China is the narrow waterway through those Malacca Straits to reach the rest of the world. And obviously if that waterway was to close up in any sense, then China's oil and gas supplies would be under threat and their exports to the rest of the world would be under threat. So it would threaten China's existence as a global trading nation. China, through its own Belt and Road Initiative, which seeks to rebuild trade connections in different countries, has sought to invest in Africa, where many of the rare earth minerals needed for EV battery technology are located, such as cobalt, lithium, nickel, copper and zinc, and other metals. In China itself, of course, about 30% of the world's rare earth deposits are based. And China has the processing capabilities more than any other country to process those elements. And it sells products on to other countries. The United States lacks sufficient processing plants and is reliant heavily on supply from China. Of course, they'd prefer not to be, especially with the potential conflict with China over policies and disagreements over places such as Taiwan, which we've witnessed in the last week. China's demand, of course, outstrips its domestic supply. So it will seek through the Belt and Road Initiative to draw in many of those rare earth minerals from other places, such as Africa and even South America. China's the biggest shipbuilder in the world, too. And over the past few years, it's expanded its shipbuilding capabilities, not just in container ships, which it builds many of, but in its military presence. It wants a navy that can match the best in the world. And it's invested huge sums of money to develop that naval capacity. And that's all based to protect that South China Sea and China's interests in the world. China also has an alliance with Russia, whereby several pipelines linked to Russian oil and gas sources run into China, bringing oil and gas through landlines. It's also put investment through its Belt and Road Initiative into Pakistan to develop a port with access to the South China Sea. And it's doing everything it can to strengthen its position in that area from the threats that America might pose, especially if a disagreement over Taiwan erupts into a war. Marco Polo went to China in 1260 from Constantinople, of course. The Silk Road was the road where textiles, food, paper, gunpowder, and all kinds of trade took place. And China is trying to create the present, similar to that past, in its One Belt, One Road initiative. It's trying to connect 
trading places along the route of the old Silk Road. And of course, it's extended it into other areas, into the new trading places. And it's put lots of investment in places where it can acquire its materials and its goods, and particularly its energy, from. Essentially, it's it's pushed ahead with these overland routes to get energy in and goods out. And this is because it feels constrained by the South China Sea, because it only has two ways out of the South China Sea, and they're blocked if, uh, if there's any disruption. Straits of Malacca is one, and on the other side, it has to go past Japan. In the South China Sea, China, Taiwan, the Philippines, Brunei, Indonesia, Malaysia and Vietnam all claim rights to that sea, which extend beyond the United Nations Treaty. China claims most of the territory in what's become known as the Nine Dash Line, and it's concerned that conflict with the US could block the trade in goods, and more importantly, the flow of energy into China. The UN Convention of 1982 said that 12 miles from the coast is the limit of anybody's sea territory. China has built five islands in the South China Sea, as naval and air bases to protect its interests. The Strait of Malacca is the crunch point. Three and a half million dollars of global trade passes through each year. Two thirds of maritime trade goes through that strait. Third of all the world trade goes through those straits. 15 million barrels of oil pass through every day. And about a third of liquid natural gas that's traded in the world. China and Japan get 80% of oil through the route. China's the sixth largest producer of oil in the world, of course, but that only meets 20% of its own demand. There are 1.4 billion people in China. It consumes 25% of all world energy. It has deposits of 13% of all the coal in the world. And it's still largely a coal economy. Coal represents 60%, 20% oil, 6% LNG, and the rest is in other sources of energy, such as renewables. So it's a long way to go if it's to meet the climate change targets. Most of the oil that China consumes comes from the Persian Gulf, and the Straits of Hormuz and the Straits of Malacca are two choke points that China is concerned about. In the 1980s, China exported oil to Japan. 1.6% of the global economy in 1987 was held by China. But since then, it's had rapid growth. It's now an economic powerhouse, and today it's the biggest importer of oil and LNG in the globe. China, of course, has links directly to Russia, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan. It gets 10 million barrels of oil each year from Kazakhstan. It gets 7,000 kilometers of piped oil from Turkmenistan down a pipeline to Shanghai. 50% of Turkmenistan's output in oil goes to China. China is Russia's largest market for oil today, and the different pipelines and the links that they have to Russia are growing. Myanmar also exports oil to China, and China's invested in Godal, a port in Pakistan, to protect its open access to that seaport, which it considers strategic. It's also built the Karikoram Highway, and surprisingly, it invested a billion dollars in loans to Sri Lanka in Hambantota, a southern port on the Indian Ocean, 
but when Sri Lanka couldn't pay, they demanded a 99-year lease on the port. India wasn't too pleased about that, of course, and wanted Sri Lanka to ensure that there would be no military presence there. So all in all, China's interests are being protected carefully, and it's all about energy. So if you want to know why China is so nervous over Taiwan and the surrounding countries and the United States' presence in the South China Sea, energy is one of the major concerns and protecting China's interest. So that's it for this episode of the Chain Reaction Podcast about energy and energy supplies. And I hope it's taking you from a position of understanding the developed world context with regard to energy and why energy prices are rising and has helped to understand China's position and perhaps some of the anger directed at the United States. Of course, it has to be about balance. It has to be about securing energy for the United States and Europe. And China too has to secure its energy supply. When countries have conflict, it's usually about more than just a regional boundary. It's about resources. It's about claims to those resources. And it's about protecting future positions. And that's what all nation states attempt to do. The concern for the West, of course, is that the dominance and the dominant players move out of the sphere of influence. And I think that's critical for the future of supply chains and world trade to ensure that things work for everyone. Don't forget to drop by and pick up any episodes that you've missed in the last few weeks or more. There's been some great episodes that you might want to catch up on. And uh, I'll be back with the News Roundup on Saturday, 12 noon. As always, I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. Bye for now. been listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast written, presented and produced by Tony Hines. Hi, I'm Tony Hines. I'm here to tell you about the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. I've been researching and writing about supply chains for over 25 years. I wrote my first book on supply chain strategies in the early 2000s. Each week we have special episodes on particular topics relating to supply chains. Now we have a weekly news roundup every Saturday at 12 noon. All things impacting global supply chains in that week. So come and join us on the Chain Reaction Podcast. I look forward to seeing you there. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. Bye for now.